Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is Stefan Bauer. Stefan teaches early modern history at Warwick University, and he's the author of a brilliant new book, The Invention of Papal History, Onofrio Panvinio, Between Renaissance and Catholic Reform, just published by Oxford University Press. Stefan, congratulations on the book, and welcome to the show. Thank you, uh, Crawford, for inviting me. Well, thank you for your time today. Before we begin to talk about this really important new book, The Invention of Papal History, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes. Um, I think in order to understand um, how the, the book came about, I need to say a little bit about my background. Um, I'm from Germany, so I studied history in, in Germany, but I, also, I already sort of took three different roads at the same time because I during my undergraduate I also did a junior year abroad in Cambridge at Corpus Christi College and an Erasmus um, study period in Italy. And then uh, for my postgraduate studies, I went to London again to a research institute, which is the Warburg Institute, which all also combines sort of the tradition of German scholarship and Italian scholarship, but being placed in London. And I did my PhD there as well. And after my PhD, and I say a little bit about what I did uh, later, um, after my PhD, I went to Italy to a research institute, which is the German Historical Institute in Rome, uh, which also combines, you know, uh, the German tradition of scholarship with uh, study of Italian history. In fact, it was opened when the Vatican archives were opened in the uh, late 19th century. And, uh, and after that, I went and I worked at the Italian-German Historical Institute in Trent in uh, North Italy, which is, uh, is also works on the relationship between uh, German uh, scholarship and Italian scholarship. And then I came back to England and I've been teaching at uh, different universities uh, in England. I've been teaching in London. I've been teaching at University of York. Royal Holloway, and and now currently I'm teaching at University of Warwick. Now, can you tell us a little bit more about the background to this book, Stefan? You you mentioned at the beginning that this this project is a smaller version of some other work that you've done in this area. Of course, you've been publishing in this area for a very long time. Yes, I have. So um, I've always been interested in the history of historiography. It's not always been Renaissance historiography. Uh, so my first book project was on a historian who's famous for his history of the civilization of the Renaissance in Italy, which is Jakob Burckhardt, the 19th century Swiss historian, uh, who also wrote a history of uh, Greek civilization. So that was my first book project, The Reception of Greek de- Democracy in 19th Century Historical Thought. And they then moved to the Renaissance when I went to the Warburg Institute, which is sort of concentrates on Renaissance studies. And I worked on papal history in the earlier Renaissance in the 15th century. 
And that was my, my second book, which was about the papal biographer and historian, the humanist, Bartolomeo Platina, who wrote A Lives of the Popes, uh, which he finished in 1475 and presented to the uh, reigning pope at the time, Sixtus IV. And what uh, Platina did was that being a humanist, he was very keen on improving uh, the elegance of the Latin language. So when he looked at what had been written about the popes before him, which was the medieval book of pontiffs, the Liber Pontificalis, as it's called in Latin, he decided that he had to transform his source into a more elegant version of papal lives. Um, so I studied how he did that, um, which other sources he also consulted in order to create a narrative. And I found out that he he's interesting because he uses... Uh, you could say a non-ecclesiastical sources, which he also brings into the, uh, the story of uh, the papacy. He uses ancient biographical models, uh, but he's also critical of the moral corruption of churchmen. So that was a sort of a reforming trend within humanism at the time. And I found it really interesting that that was possible, you say, in 14 the 1470s in Rome, right under the sort of in the under the uh, the eyes of the reigning um, pope, and presenting the book to him, while at the same time criticizing the morals of a high, low and high churchmen. And in fact, the other thing I found in my in my studies uh, when I went into Roman archives, especially the archive of the Inquisition and the archives of the Congregation for the Index of Prohibited Books. Those were institutions that were created in the 16th century. I found that uh, the editions of Platina's lives from, 15, from 1560s onwards were censored. So my book, my second book is called The Censorship and Fortuna of Platina's Lives of the Popes in the 16th Century. While... Uh, and this leads me to the book on on Panvinio. But did you want to say something, Crawford? No, I was I was just I was just going to comment how how, how yeah. neatly that took us to a discussion of an Orfeo yeah. Panvinio. Um, yes. Could you tell us who Panvinio was and why he matters? Well, I first came across uh, Panvinio because he was the editor of Platina's Lives of the Popes in the 16th century. So he brought out a an an updated edition, which where he continued the papal life. So Platina obviously stops in 1475, and Panvinio brings him up to date uh, with the you know, descriptions of the lives of the succeeding popes until the 1560s. So that's how I came across him, and I found out that there had been very little work had been done on him. So I went, I went to see who he was. Panvinio was an Augustinian friar. Uh, which is the same order that Martin Luther came from, incidentally. So uh, his order had come into a little bit of disrepute in the uh, in the early 16th century, and there were some uh, reforming generals of that order who, who tried to uh, impose sort of stricter uh, stricter communal life and, uh, to, uh, onto onto the the order. So um, Panvinio came from Verona. 
He's born in 1530. And he went to study in first in Naples and then in Rome in the institutions uh, within the Augustinian order, which allowed friars to study philosophy and theology. That was the usual course of study. Um, much more philosophy than theology because that was the, that was the foundation of what they studied. But he had this passion for history, and he says since 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 he was a teenager, it's not something that you could study at university. It's a, a passion he developed on the side while he was studying uh, philosophy and theology. And then, because he had protection from sort of higher in in, in the higher spheres of the uh, Augustinian order, he was asked to work. Uh, his first work was a collaboration on the history of the Augustinian order, starting with what they claimed was St. Augustine, which now we know it's, it's a legend because the order was actually formed uh, in the Middle Ages, but not at Augustine's time. And then he devoted himself to uh, studying ancient Rome, pagan ancient Rome. So that was his passion, antiquarianism. He was part of a group of scholars which uh, we uh, we refer to as antiquarians in in the 16th century, uh, in the middle of the 16th century. So he worked on the institutions of the Roman Empire, commentaries on the Roman Republic. Uh, he worked on ancient Roman calendars, calendars of lists of office holders, uh, fragments of which had been discovered in the Roman Forum, and scholars were now. Uh, at work putting these fragments together and interpreting the, the chronology um, of these office holders, which gave them an idea of the chronology of ancient Roman history. In, but what happened in the 1550s, there was a sort of shift in emphasis uh, at the Curia and, and the people that Panvinia was involved with um, convinced him to put aside his studies of uh, ancient pagan Rome and to devote himself to the study of church history. And a man who was instrumental in this was Marcello Cervini, who was a cardinal, who then became librarian of the Vatican Library and then became pope, but was pope only for a few days before he died. But he was responsible for Pondinio's turning from uh, ancient pagan history to to church history. Uh, Panvinio then uh, had to look for new patrons and he found another very important patron in Cardinal Alessandro Farnese, who was a cardinal living in Rome, not always, but generally living in Rome. And he was the wealthiest cardinal of the Roman church. There There was a group of scholars sort of um, circling around him and uh, Panvinia was the most important historian, but there were other types of scholars as well. Uh, For example, Giorgio Vasari says that his idea of writing Lives of the Artists was born at a dinner, you know, at the dinner table of uh, Cardinal Farnese, where he was there with with other scholars. Panvinia then wrote, uh, many things he wrote um, were books that were written for the first time. So he wrote the first history of cardinals and in fact when other scholars then later uh, worked on history of the papacy they, uh, they this was the book they could refer to it was the only book on the topic at the time he wrote the first history of papal elections uh, and it was also the, 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 
the largest history of papal elections that has ever been written um, until today um, is what I found. Uh, he also worked on the iconography of medieval popes, trying to reconstruct how they were depicted, what their vestments were. He worked on, he researched catacombs and ancient burial rites. He worked on uh, descriptions of medieval churches. So he's now being used as a source for art historians and, and many other things. Until uh, he died in 1568. So he died when he was 38 years old of a fever. Uh, we don't know what kind of fever. Suddenly, uh, when he was traveling to uh, Sicily with the cardinal, and he died in Palermo um, on the Wednesday before Easter in uh, 1568, which I found. Mm. So, in many ways, his life was steeped in the work of historical scholarship, wasn't it? Your book, your book brings this out really beautifully. But what was the status of historical writing in Panvinio's youth? Uh, you mentioned before this was not something he could be educated into. It had to be a matter of private study. Yes. Um, history was not taught at Catholic universities until 1742. So not for 200 years after that. Um, so he became a historian and he had a special privilege to, to, to work as a historian because friars were expected to uh, 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 chant in the choir or to beg for alms. Uh, friars who had academic titles were to some degree um, exempt from these uh, some of these duties. But he had a very special privilege because he was allowed to live outside of his Augustinian house and to live with the cardinal and to work as a historian, basically 24 hours. Well, they say he almost worked 24 hours a day, but this is what he did. So he was one of the few full-time uh, historians at the time. Um, what's also interesting that at the time, um, I first, I said that he worked as an antiquarian, worked on ancient Rome, but he also worked on church history. Now, the circumstances were very different because if you worked on ancient Rome at the time, it was much more sort of uh, the church didn't really get involved and uh, with what you were writing because you were writing about a pagan past. Whereas if you were writing on church history, you could get in trouble with the censors, and that's what he did. So why was church history so important at the time? So, you know, so I'm trying to differentiate between what different kinds of history we're talking about. Um, church history was uh, a contested was contested from the beginning of the Reformation onwards. So from uh, from uh, sort of the earliest debates that Luther was involved in, and I always refer to the 1519, 1519 disputation in Leipzig, where Luther debated with a Catholic theologian named Johann Eck about the papal primacy. Uh, papal primacy was the idea that the Roman Pope had universal authority uh, over all other bishops, and he could even have the right to depose emperors. So Luther uh, did his research in order to prepare for that uh, disputation, 
And he came to argue that papal primacy was an invention uh, created by by the uh, church hierarchy in the last few centuries, and it was not of divine origin. So that these were uh, this was one of the few uh, sort of venture, uh, few moments where Luther actually ventured ventured into church history. But you can see from from that debate how uh, history was important in the debates between Catholics and Protestants when they debated about, about uh, which was the right church. Was it the Protestant church, which was now uh, recreating sort of the the early apostolic church or was it the catholic church which had maintained its traditions throughout the middle ages and for both you needed history in order to in order to make your points so could you tell us a little bit more about how history then relates to confessionalization in the 16th century yes so um if you think about the as i said um the church traditions, uh, many of these were upheld by Catholic historians who argued that these went back to apostolic times. And it was, it was very important to realize that very often there was a gap in that tradition. And, the, and that concerns the first, so the first period after the apostolic time until sort of the, uh, the medieval period where, um, a written tradition becomes more continuous. And here, very often, it becomes a matter of faith um, if you believe that the tradition was actually carried through from apostolic times to, uh, to the Middle Ages. And this concerns even the, the very series of popes, the, uh, the continuity of uh, the pontificates, um, and why is that important? Because authority was passed on from Christ to St. Peter, to the first popes, and then in a continuous line from one pope to another. So if that line was ever broken, the present pope, the pope in the 16th century, when we're actually discussing, uh, could not claim that his authority derived from the apostles. So... Uh, Protestants did everything they could to attack the, these, uh, this apostolic uh, succession. One of, the, one of the stories, for example, that was used for that purpose was the story of Pope Joan, uh, which is known to many people even from, from cinema, from films, from, from novels, uh, which is the legend that in the 9th century there was a female pope who dressed up as a man, and then died died in childbirth while uh, on a procession in Rome. Now, if that story was true, then the apostolic succession was interrupted. So, Ponvinio, again, he's he's the key man uh, in that discussion. He uh, proves that the story was false. He proves that there was no contemporary source which actually mentioned that source. There was no reliable source that actually mentioned that legend for several centuries, whereas uh, Protestant historians, the authors of the so-called Magdeburg Centuries, which is the big Protestant church history, uh, argues that these sources have been suppressed because, and they say, and I'm quoting, because 
she was a woman and because of the scandal. So, but these arguments could also be turned around depending on your confession and depending how you, how you wanted the story to to evolve. So, people were researching historical evidence, but historical evidence also was, I would say, manipulated sometimes in order to fit within overarching, you could say, political priorities or theological priorities. It was very often theologians who defined what could be said and what was censored. And I think that's something we'll talk about later as well, I hope. So he, he lived this really abundant life and scholarship, but what happened to Panvinio's legacy? Yes, so Panvinio died in 1568. Um, he had been uh, appointed a um, he had been appointed to a, to a uh, position in the Vatican Library in 1565 by Pope Pius IV, but his relations with the uh, succeeding Pope Pius V had worsened, and in uh, in fact, when Panvinio died in 1568, uh, this Pope. Um, didn't lose much time before he actually decreed that Panvinio's works could not be printed and could not be reprinted. There were lots of manuscripts which were waiting to be printed and other works were waiting to be reprinted. And this is because this Pope uh, Pius I was uh, quite a strict Catholic reformer. And Panvinio was um, sort of um, trapped between different reforming currents. Uh, Pius IV was a more relaxed reformer. Pius IV was a stricter reformer. So uh, he would have had to change his writing style according to which pope was actually uh, reigning at the time. Um, so Pius V uh, prohibits the reprinting of his books. His manuscripts are kept locked up and they are kept at cardinals' houses, a succession, a succession of different cardinals, while his brother, Paolo Panvinio, is trying to get his works printed uh, because uh, he wants to uh, profit from the, uh, from the publication. He wants to make money. So he spends time lobbying cardinals in Rome. And in the 15th, 80s, uh, they finally managed to print one book, which is on the, uh, the primacy of Peter, and only the first part of that gets printed in 1589. But then there's a commission in 1592, which uh, decides that we, they needed to look at all of his manuscripts. So they opened these trunks, and they found 87 uh, 87 works uh, in manuscript works, and that's that's why I call sort of the the, the corpus of his works I call the invention of papal history. Um, that included also a, a history of the church, which wasn't published, and various other works, uh, including the uh, the history of papal elections, which I mentioned earlier, and uh, these were then censored. It was not the only time that they were censored, but this commission uh, also censored his works. And I find it very interesting to see what the mentalities of these censors were, uh, what, what their relation to history was, and, and what they found offensive. So, for example, the 1592 commission found that um, Panvinio uh, criticized morals 
of churchmen, and that was actually something he inherited from his humanist predecessors, uh, from Platina, for example. Um, so they thought that couldn't be permitted. They thought that he was actually um, on the side of the emperors, taking the sides of the emperors in the in the conflicts between uh, in the power struggles between popes and emperors in the Middle Ages. Uh, he admitted that emperors could have influenced papal elections. And, and Panvinio even said in, in one of his works, what I'm going to write is not going to please the Christian reader. And his censor uh, thought that this was an admission of his guilt. But what Panvinio actually wanted was something else. It was kind of like a trigger warning for uh, the distressing sources that he was going to cite, but these were sources that were documenting actual uh, practice at the time, and the fact that uh, emperors had influenced papal elections was a historical fact. That's uh, fascinating. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, now, you, you mentioned that uh, this is the first substantial work in Panvinio for over 100 years, I think. What do, what do you hope the impact of this book will be? Well, um, there is a okay. There was a biography about uh, Panvinio from 1899. So uh, this is the first biography, and it's the first study of his works on church history. There was a book on his works on ancient Rome published in 1996 in French by a, uh, um, a scholar named Jean-Louis Ferrari, who unfortunately uh, just died a, a few months ago. But um, what I'm trying, I was trying to fill a gap, and that is uh, what happened to Catholic historiography in the middle of the 16th century, because Protestant historiography at the time has received much more attention. So uh, I think in the public's view, it is believed that uh, sort of modern historical method was invented by Protestants and much less so by Catholics. And so that's one, that's one aspect I, I want to bring out. So that there was a, an open and creative phase of Catholic history writing at the time as well. And I'm talking about the middle of the 16th century before the first volume of Cesare Baronio's his ecclesiastical annals came out in 1588. And that was then the official Catholic history. Um, which was very different from Panvinio's work, much more dogmatic, much more confessionalized. So I'm interested in that creative period um, before that. And I'm also hoping uh, that my book will, readers will be able to read my book in different ways. Um, it's, not, it's not very obvious that sort of I'm trying to justify what the Catholic Church was doing or I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, to justify the opposite. I think um, what, what Panvinio was doing was he was idiosyncratic. Uh, his work could be read by Protestants as somebody who was trying to sort of not lean to either side. And I think it can be read by Catholics in the same way too. So I'm hoping that my book is also able to sort of to manage that balance. 
Well, it's, it's a brilliant book, Stefan, and it deserves a very, very wide readership. The Invention of Papal History on a Free Open Vigno Between Renaissance and Catholic Reform, just published by Oxford University Press. Before we wind up our conversation, Stefan, could you tell us what you're working on at the moment? I'm working on, at the moment, um, I've been uh, writing uh, another article on um, the reception of the, uh, the Liber Pontificalis, and there was a myth that was propagated by Platina and Panvinio that the Liber Pontificalis had been written by uh, Anastasius the Librarian, which was a medieval uh, diplomat, and uh, how that myth came about, which is not true. I'm, work- I, I, I'm just publishing an article on that. But my next pro- uh, project is going to be about forgeries, um, about forgeries in church history, and especially late antique and medieval forgeries and how they were discovered to be forgeries in the early modern period and again and how they were uh, became part of these confessional discussions so at the same time we have scholarship exposing forgeries and we have theologians or other um, members of the church arguing that they, they were not forgeries for, for quite a while, even though they had already been exposed. And I found that that a transitional period so fascinating. So that's uh, something I'm, I'm working on now. That sounds wonderful. Hopefully we can get you back in the show sometime when that comes out to talk about it. That would be great. <laughs> well, Stefan, thank you for your time today. We really appreciate it. And thank you for taking the time also to write this book and for being willing to talk about it, The Invention of Papal History, just published by Oxford University Press. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.